Thank you, brother, very much for that song selection. Thank you all for being here. Thank you to the people in the sound booth. Thank you for security out front, keeping us all safe. And thank you, Lord, for your precious word. Will you follow along with me while we read Mark 14, 26 through 31? This is what the word of God says. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny three times. You will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. This is the word of God. May he applies eternal truths to our hearts. You can be seated. Let me pray before we get started. Will you bow with me? Father, we need your word to speak to us. Lord Jesus, you said, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, Lord, if we did not eat for two, three days, we would be physically weak. We would be uh, doing very poorly, headaches perhaps, no motivation, cloudiness, fogginess of the mind because we had not fed our bodies. Lord, for those who are having cloudiness of spirit, no energy in the spirit, no motivation in the spirit. Lord, I pray, please encourage them, help them to be feeding themselves with the word daily. And I pray that you would feed us now. I pray that today, this morning, would be a great feast for our souls. Lord, please give us all the grace that we need for today. Your grace is sufficient for us and your power is made perfect in weakness. We thank you for the written word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's remember where we've come from because it says in verse 26, when they had just sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Uh, they had just come from Passover, remember, up in the upper room. And these are some of the last hours of ministry that Jesus will have with his followers. And we're going to see that they are going to be given good advice here. And we're going to see the error, of course, of Peter's ways, which is why I've titled it this morning, Put No Trust in the Flesh. Put No Trust in the flesh, which we are often tempted to do. Few last hours with Jesus, with his followers before he suffers. So much as Jesus' work has already been done with these followers over the last three plus years. And now things are coming to a head, aren't they? A climactic moment for all of human history is about to happen. Actually, all of universal history, a climactic moment is about to happen. It's just over the horizon. Because by the time the sun comes up again for Jesus, he will have been arrested. He will be started to be made sport of by the guards, uh, followed by uh, being passed back and forth between Pontius Pilate and King Herod, also being flogged, and then of course being crucified. All that's on the horizon by the time the sun is well up in the sky on the following day. And Jesus has some final prophetic words before any of this begins. Before any of that takes place, he has some final things to say to them, 
The father gave Jesus words to warn his followers, words that needed to be recorded in sacred scripture for the teaching and the warning and the building up of his people for hundreds, thousands of years to come. These words were for the 12, but they're also for you this morning in February 2022 in a little church in Southside, Alabama. This is where we're going as far as an outline for this text. We're going to talk about four main points. We've got Jesus' prediction, Peter's pride, Satan's petition, and then Jesus' prayer. That's where we're going. Jesus' prediction, Peter's pride, Satan's petition, and Jesus' prayer. So they've completed the Passover meal in the upper room. They ended by singing a hymn, we see here in verse 26. And now they went to one of Jesus' favorite spots when he's down south, down there in Judea, close to Jerusalem. One of his favorite spots there is the Mount of Olives. That's where we find him here for this conversation. So let's look at verses 27 and 28. Let's mainly start with just the first five words in verse 27. What do they say? Shocking. No doubt to be heard by the followers of Jesus that night. You will all fall away. They may have been expecting light conversation that evening. They may have been expecting to reflect on what just went with the Passover. Let's talk about that. No light conversation for this evening. This will be his last free evening with them before he suffers. Last moments, I should say. You will all fall away. Now, at this point, they should know and they should be fully convinced that they can trust Jesus' predictions, right? What have they seen so far? Let's just name a few things. Well, you might recall back in Mark 4, they get into a boat and Jesus prefaces that trip by saying, let us go across to the other side. Jesus falls asleep in the boat more than likely exhausted from the healing and teaching for hours and hours of the previous day. A storm comes up on the Sea of Galilee. The disciples wake Jesus, Master, don't you care that we're drowning? He stands up, rebukes the wind and the sea and the waves and says, where's your faith? Faith in his words. I said we're going to the other side. That's one example. Jesus says it, it's going to happen. Let's just think of a second example. We talked about this a few weeks ago as well. Remember, Jesus tells them before his triumphal entry exactly what they're going to see, exactly what they're going to say, exactly what they're going to do in order to get this donkey for him to ride on in the triumphal entry. And it all comes to pass. They saw exactly what he said. They said exactly what he said. And it all came to pass exactly as he said. Then he does it again. When it comes to prepping for the Passover, You're going to go into this town, you're going to see this, you're going to follow him, you're going to say this, and it's going to be just like I said. And they do it, and it's just like he said. So, by this point, they should know that if Jesus says it, it's going to come to pass. It's going to happen. That should be encouraging for you as well, all right? You have something that even the early followers didn't have, all of the scriptures written down for you that you can even carry around. I've heard one pastor say, having the scriptures was, is actually better than being there. 
Because even being there, you wouldn't have heard it all. You wouldn't have seen it all. And we get all of it. All that the Lord has chosen to reveal to us, we have. We have it in our own language. And praise God for that. So Jesus knows what's going to happen. He predicts it. It's going to happen. So in verse 27, he continues to say, you'll all fall away for it's written. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. He takes the authority of the scriptures. He says, I, we know this is going to happen, not just based on what I'm telling you, but because it's also written. It's also pre-recorded. So much of my life has been pre-recorded. In the scriptures, Jesus says, and the scripture will be fulfilled. Jesus gives us some spiritual commentary about this. He gives us some spiritual commentary about Zechariah 13, 7, by the way. That's what he's, he's quoting. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But did you know that in Zechariah 13, 7, that original phrase, when it was originally spoken, the context surrounding it was judgment language. Did you know that? Zechariah was prophesying about how judgment was going to fall on the people of God because of their wickedness. So this is actually judgment language originally. Judgment of God for the wickedness of men. Jesus, as the righteous shepherd we see here, will be struck down in judgment for the sins of his sheep. Jesus, as the righteous shepherd, will be struck down in judgment for the sins of his sheep. Not his own sins. The sins of all those who would ever believe. Yours and mine. And they scatter and they leave him when it happens. When it begins to happen. So let's look at verse 28. Because Jesus isn't done. It's very somber. It's very serious. They're very shocked. She's probably used to shocking things coming out of Jesus' mouth by this time. But still, now he's pointing at them and saying, this is, you all are going to do this. Verse 28, but after I'm raised up, I'll go before you to Galilee. It's not going to end with a scattering, but a gathering. There will be the regathering of the sheep after all this is done, the regathering of the sheep because there will be victory over the grave. He's going to be struck down as a righteous shepherd, yes, but this ends in triumph, not defeat. And he tells them that. Jesus not only mentions himself being raised up, praise God for that, because without the resurrection, we have no hope. We have a dead savior, not a risen one. But we have a risen one because the resurrection is true and real. And if Christ be not raised from the dead, our faith is in vain, Paul tells us. So he not only says, I'm going to be raised. Did you notice? He, he mentions a region. He gives a specific region of where he's going to go. I'm going to go before you into Galilee. Have you ever wondered, what, why does he mention that? You might think more about it if we knew uh, the landscape of the country a bit better. Where he is right now, you know, Israel's sort of shaped like my hand. You got Judea down here. This is where Jerusalem is. This is where they are now. Galilee's up here, where Jesus is from. Hmm. Why is there the mention of Galilee? Why is that important? Well, because 
Let's just go over what actually happens after the resurrection first. Remember, after Jesus is raised from the dead, he, appear, he appears to Mary first at the tomb. She thinks he's the gardener, remember? That happened in Judea, down here. Remember when Jesus appeared in the upper room? The, the, do- I mean, the doors were locked. I don't think it was the upper room. In the room when the doors were locked, they were scared. Hey, the Pharisees and the bad guys are going to come get us. And Jesus appears to them in the room. Doors locked. Where did that happen? Judea also, down south. Remember when Jesus appeared to Thomas, who wasn't originally there with the others, and says to him, because he wasn't convinced. It's shocking, isn't it? It's shocking. How everyone around you, who you know and love, can tell you they've seen something, tell you they know something to be true, And you still say, I don't believe you. Isn't that shocking? So Jesus himself appears to Thomas and says, Place your fingers here, put your head on my side, stop doubting. Believe, but blessed are those who have not seen, but yet believe. Also happened in where? Judea, down south. When he appeared to the men on the road to Emmaus. Where's Emmaus? Not far from Jerusalem, also down south. So why the mention of I'm going before you into Galilee? When did he even go to Galilee? Did he even go to Galilee? Yes, there's one appearance. In Galilee, when he appears at the shore. Let's look at that. Turn to John 21. Turn to John 21 in your Bible. If you don't have your Bible, it'll be on the screen behind me as well. Look at John 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. By the way, that's the Sea of Galilee. And he Revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said, we'll go with you. They went out, got to the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered, no. He said to them, Cast another note on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast it. Now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped from work, stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other to swim, by the way, to swim to the shore. That's what he means. Just throw himself in there and stay there. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. Simon Peter went aboard, hauled the net ashore, a large amount of fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, 
None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. Now this was the third time Jesus was revealed to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to them, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. I believe Jesus mentions this appearance in Galilee because this will be the healing for the folly that Peter is about to commit, which begins with his pride, which we find in the very next portion of our text. Look at verse 29 now. Let's now talk about Peter's pride. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. Lord, these losers might leave you. Yes, I get that. I've been with them for years now. But look at me in the eyes, Jesus. I'm your guy. I'm your guy. I know me well enough to know me. And I'd never do that. Anytime the words come out of your mouth, I would never do that. You need to also recall these words. There but for the grace of God go I. Meaning, if it wasn't for God's grace, that would be me. We were talking with the children recently about just some folly in churches that you see online and things like that and just ridiculous things that we all can look at and we say, that's ridiculous. That should not be happening in the church. So irreverent and just foolhardy and worldly. How could that be? And I reminded the children, I said, children, if it wasn't for God's grace, that's how daddy would lead his church too. There, but for the grace of God, go I. And Peter basically says, I would never do that. We're to put no confidence in the flesh. None. Going back to Zechariah again, there's a, a verse there, Zechariah 4, 6. says this, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit says the Lord of hosts. What's the context there? The context there is the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem that had been destroyed by the Babylonians when they came in and took all the people away into Babylon. We just talked about this recently when we were studying through Nehemiah and Ezra. Remember when they come back? They start to rebuild the temple. And he tells them, this is how it's going to be rebuilt. Not by might, not by man's might, not by man's power, but by my spirit says the Lord. That's how it's going to happen. Would it be their hands building the temple and stacking the stones? Absolutely. Yes. But they were not to trust in their hands to see it built. Would it be their feet carrying them around, moving them around as they do the work? Yes, absolutely. But they were not to depend on their feet to get the job done. Would it be their intellect 
helping them to design and plan the layout of the building? Yes, absolutely. But they were not to base their success on their own minds. Amen? They were dependent upon the Lord himself for the successful building and completion of the temple. Just like you and I are dependent upon him daily. Some of you in here have done great feats, great things that people would look at and say, wow, that's amazing. Others of us in here have uh, fallen on our face and done very poorly. And you know, those two things are probably true about all of us in one way or another. We've had great successes, and we've had great failures. If you've been in the faith long enough, and if, you, and if you've read the scriptures well enough, you know that even your great successes were not because of your greatness, though, were they? Not even a little bit. Not by might nor my power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. This should have been Peter's focus as well as yours and mine. This better be your focus and better be your understanding or you are headed for ruin and shipwreck that will not just affect you. Trust me, your sins never only affect you. Ever. Not ever. They always touch someone else because we are connected to a family, connected to friends. We have children of our own. We have grandparents back behind us, right? From where we came. And your sins never just affect you. So this should have been Peter's focus as well. And like I said, it better be yours. I don't mean it better be or I'm going to punch you in the face. No, I'm saying it better be or else you are headed for a cliff. And the reality of your consequences will be the gravity that pulls you down. Peter had all his confidence in the flesh and his pride was deceiving him. His pride had deceived him so badly. Listen to this. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the who? Humble, exactly, James 4, 6. I will not trust in my bow, Psalm 44, 6. Put not your trust in princes, Psalm 144, 146, 3. Lean not unto your own understanding, Proverbs 3, 5. He that trusts in riches shall fall, Proverbs eleven twenty eight. 28. He that trusts in his own heart is a fool, Proverbs 28, 26. It's all throughout the scriptures that we are to put zero trust in the flesh and our own ability to do these things. The proud man trusts in his own ability, his own strength, his own plans, not knowing that the very air he breathes is a gift from God. Did you know that? The very next breath that you take in that really is what we call an involuntary act because you do it even while you sleep. Did you know even that is a gift from God. How do I know that? God gives to all men life, breath, and everything. Your very being, your very existence for sitting in this room right now is even tied up in God. It is a gift. You're not taking it. You didn't create yourself, and you're not keeping yourself alive. It is a gift from the Lord. So how foolish it would be for you to say, but 
I am fully capable of doing X, Y, and Z just fine on my own. Let me know how that works out for you. Take heed that you stand lest you fall. You see, the wise man knows his weaknesses. The wise man knows his weaknesses. He knows his shortcomings. He knows he is to walk humbly before his God, believing what the Word of God not only says about him, but what the Word of God says about God himself and our dependence upon him. There's a reason why even Jesus tells you to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Because he gives it to you daily. You're dependent upon him for all of it. Listen to Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24. This is all throughout the scriptures, which is why it's so bewildering that, that, that Peter is acting this way. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. You can be wise But if you boast in that wisdom, you're not showing real true wisdom, are you? You're showing pride and arrogance, actually, because true wisdom comes from God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. We have some military personnel in our room this morning. Strong men, done some amazing things. But one day you will be old and weak, just like all men grow old and weak. Mr. Joe in the back used to be in the army. He can't jump over logs and swing from ropes anymore, can he? We can't trust in anything. The rich man boasting in his riches, some of you in this room have had more money at one point than you have now, right? It tends to flee away when things change in life, doesn't it? That's definitely true for the Ezels. We haven't always had five children. The humble man not only knows his flesh isn't to be trusted, he also knows who is to be trusted, and that's the Lord. So we have to switch trust from one area, which is self, and put it over into God. And that's where we start to come out of this pride. That's where we start to really grow in wisdom and true humility. Because then we understand, no, 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 no. I actually can't do this. Even James tells us, don't say tomorrow you'll go here and do this and do such and such. You ought to instead say, if the Lord wills, I'll do it. Because you don't know. You don't know. But there's a third thing the humble man knows too. And it's that he also knows his enemy is to be expected. He knows the, his, his own self is not to be trusted. He knows the Lord is to be trusted. But then thirdly, he knows that his enemy is to be expected. So there's actually, between our text and between verses 29 and 30, there's actually a few more sentences that were said that day in the Mount of Olives that we find in Luke. Luke 22, 31 and 32 are a few sentences that Luke records in his recounting of what happened that Mark doesn't. And listen to what was also said after Peter said what he said. This is what Jesus actually responded with. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, 
that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith might not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So let's now talk about Satan's petition. This is the third part, Satan's petition. Children, if you don't know what a petition is, it means like you're asking for something. That's what that means. Satan had his eye on who? On Simon. He wanted him just like he wants you and he wants your children. What did he want with Peter? You want to help him in some way, aid him in some way? No. He wanted to sift him, sift him like wheat. I found this on, I found this on the internet. I am no farmer. I'm not Charles Ingalls. I've never planted a crop and raised it up, seen pictures and such. So I go to the internet when it comes to wheat harvesting. After wheat has been harvested, it says, one of the steps is preparing it for use, and that is to sift it or thresh it. This is done to release the inedible chaff from the usable edible grain. This is also known as separating the wheat from the chaff, it says. In sifting Peter like wheat, the devil wanted... The devil wasn't asking to remove all the bad things out of Peter's life so that only the good was left. That's what you do when you sift wheat. You're removing the two things because you're like, I want the good stuff that's left over. Was that the devil's motivation here? No, it wasn't. He wanted to separate out all that the Lord had been instilling in Peter over these years, all the truth, all the godly principles, all the righteousness, all the holiness. He wanted to sift that out so that all was left was the wasteful part that is normally thrown away. He wanted Peter to continue to waste his life. He wanted to just focus on what's wasteful, what ought to be thrown out as no good, not needed, not usable, not beneficial. He said, I want that part back. That's the part that I want. Jesus, you're trying to get all that out. I'm trying to focus on it. I really want to focus on that part. I want what you've done out and away from this man. I'd like to keep only those parts that were meant to be thrown out. There are parts of your life the Lord wants thrown out as well, aren't there? I know that for myself. <laughs> I'm not such a fool to think that I've got it all together. I'm not such a fool to think that I'm as smart as I need to be, as wise as I need to be, as good of a husband as I need to be, as good as a father as, as I need to be, and definitely not as good as a pastor as I need to be. I know I've got a lot to work on still. And do you know why? Because the more I read this, the more I'm exposed to God's greatness and my need for him. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing to be in a place of need where you're constantly crying out to God, God, will you help me with this? God, will you help me with this? God, will you help me with this? Because that's where we're supposed to be with our Father. Yes, of course, he gets us up and we, and we walk on our own, we don't ever let go of his hand. We don't ever say, I got this. I'm good now. Thanks for all that you've done, but I'm good. No. How would you ever want to let go of his hand? Can you find a better hand? 
I don't know of one. There are parts in your life that the Lord wants thrown out and that the devil wants kept. Your enemy wants to convince you that good is evil and evil is good. That's why Jesus himself said, woe to those who call good evil and evil good. Do you know what a woe is? A woe is the opposite of a blessing. A woe is a curse. And so when Jesus says, woe to you, Chorazim, woe to you, Bethsaida, woe to all these countries, I mean, uh, cities and such. And when he says, woe here, he means may a curse be upon you. And it is a cursed thing, isn't it, when people call good evil and evil good. It's a cursed thing to look at wickedness and believe it's goodness. That's a cursed thing. To drink deep of worldliness and believe that it's the path to blessedness. To throw away truth while treasuring lies. That's a cursed thing. Satan asked for Simon. He wanted to remove what Jesus had done in his life. He wanted the Simon who used to belong to him. Jesus cannot and will not let that happen. Isn't that good news? For those of you in here who are in Christ, truly in Christ, he won't let that happen to you either. He won't. Listen to this. John 10, 27 through 30. Wonderful chapter. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Notice he says, my sheep are in my hand and my sheep are in my Father's hand. No one can snatch them out. You're doubly held in Christ. Satan can ask for you all he wants. And sometimes he does deceive you, trip you up, doesn't he? For those of us who are in Christ, we learn from that. We repent. We turn back. We say, help me not to be that foolish again, Lord. Please, I'm so sorry. That was bad. I should not have done that. Please help me. And he does. And those of us who are truly in Christ will not ultimately fall away. That's why it says, he who endures to the end will be saved. What does that mean? It means we show that we're truly saved by enduring. We keep going. We don't throw Jesus away when it gets hard. We cling tighter to him. We want him more. But you know what? For those of us who know Jesus, not only are we in his hands... We're also in his prayers. Look what Jesus also said in Luke 22, 32. He says, but I've prayed for you that your faith might not fail. He gives Peter all the hope he needs to survive this blow that's about to happen in his life. I've prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. Jesus is so much on the side of his people. He's so much on the side of his people that when he appears to Paul, who was then Saul, on the road, as Saul is attempting to go persecute Christians, Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Is what he said. Well, last I checked, Jesus had been ascended into heaven for quite a while at this point. A long while. 
Paul had never even met him as far as we know. Yet he says, you touch my church, you touch me. Jesus is our big brother that comes along and says, you mess with my little brother, you mess with me. That's how close we are in that family. Jesus is praying for him. Jesus is on his side. Jesus is on our side. He leads us. He guides us. He gives us all that we need for life and godliness. He gives us all that we need to succeed, but still doesn't just leave us alone at that point. You know, did you know that even if all we had was, was, was the word, if it's like you get saved, you don't have the spirit, you, but you do have the word, that would be quite a lot. But we're also given his spirit to guide us. And then we learn here he also prays for us. He, he prays for our success. This is how Peter turned back when he fell. This is the reason for his repentance. This is the foundation for him becoming one of the pillar apostles of the early church. Jesus was praying for him that his faith would not fail. And that's the only reason why his faith didn't fail because we see the real Peter I'll never deny you. A few hours later, I don't know him. Three times. Three times. Had three chances to say, okay, guys, just quit it. Yes, I know him. You could take me too. I'm done with these lies. I'm done with this cowardice. I shouldn't have said it the first time. I shouldn't have said it the second. But now is the third time that people keep accusing me of stuff. Yes, I know him. And I'll die with him. None of that happened. Here's Peter beating his chest. I am stronger than them all. And then when the pressure's on, he says, I'm scared. I, I, no, I, I never met the man. What, are you kidding me? This is why he turned back. This is why he repented. Because Jesus prayed for him. Listen to Hebrews 7, 24 and 25. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. What is intercession but prayer? Jesus prays for us. He intercedes for us. He always lives to make intercession for us. He's praying for us constantly. He's on our side. He's our biggest cheerleader But let me show you how powerful your pride can be, just how deceptive the devil can be, and just how hard your heart can be. I'm almost done, guys. I know, I know I'm demanding a lot from you right now, going a little bit. I mean, it's only 11.30. Listen, I'm trying, I'm, I'm trying to not only save some of you, I'm trying to help some of you. I'm trying to encourage some of you all with the word, because I can't do any of those things in and of myself. So, how powerful your pride can be, how deceptive the devil can be, and how hard your heart can be. Let's talk about that. Look at verses 30 and 31. So, take in context everything Jesus just said to this man, okay? Got it in there? Stored away? Doing its job? Affecting your reasoning, your logic, and all that? Look at verses 30 and 31 of our text. Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times, Peter. 
But Peter said emphatically, you know what that means? He's saying, no, Lord, you're wrong. What I'm telling you is you're not accurate at this point. What I'm telling you is I'm hearing your words, but I believe you're wrong. Let me tell you why I'm right. Let me tell you about Peter, okay? Maybe you don't know me after these three years, but let me tell you how strong I am and how right I am, Jesus. Here's my sentence. Here's what I have to say to you. If I must die with you, I will not deny you. Have you ever been so, so convinced that something was good for you? So, so convinced that you were going to do something? So, so convinced that you had it all together and what this book said was wrong? Have you ever had people around you even saying, I think you might be mistaken there. I think you think you know what's best for you and and what's good for you. But what I'm telling you as someone who loves you is that what you're saying is, is actually wrong according to what's true. And you say, still, thanks for that advice, but look who you're talking to. You know me? who always makes the best choices. You know, you know me, who always has perfect logic and reason. You know me, who's, who's never actually failed at anything in his life. You know, you know me, who, who's pretty awesome. Let's just agree on that. I mean, seriously, guys, that has to be your thought process when these things happen, is thanks for that, but I'm going to choose this loser over this winner. I'm going to choose what I believe over Jesus' words and what folly, what foolishness. Right? Jesus, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. I'm hearing what you're saying, but I'm telling you, you're wrong. And we do that. Sometimes we do that, don't we? I'm hearing what you're saying, Lord. I see what you're saying here. All this wisdom that you're putting around me too with these godly counselors around me too, hearing all that, but let me tell you something. Maybe you don't know. I got it all together. What folly. What foolishness. Repent of that and turn. God is ready to help you and forgive you and make you better than you are. We've been there. I've been there. Not to this degree, but smaller ones. And guess what? Smaller ones lead to bigger ones, don't they? He who is unfaithful with little will be unfaithful with much, Jesus said. So I want to end with that warning. And I want to end with this wisdom from God is that's to put no trust in your flesh and to put your trust only in the Lord you got to put your trust in the Lord for, number one, for your salvation. You can't save yourself. You know that you've sinned and broken God's laws. You know that full well. There's none of us that are righteous, not even one. And the Lord laid upon Jesus the iniquity of us all. Jesus Christ is your only hope for salvation. He's the only way. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. There's one name given under heaven by which we must be saved, the name Jesus Christ. He's the only way, the only mediator being between God and man. And when you know and understand for sure 
that you are a sinner against God and God has convinced you of that, you repent and you say, Lord, please forgive me. And you put your faith and trust in Christ who you've now been convicted and convinced is the only way. And that's how you're saved. Because he's the only one who's died for your sins. He's the only righteous one whom God has laid the iniquity of us all upon. And he's a living Savior. And his arms are open right now to receive any who put their faith and trust in him and just fall upon him. Not thinking, but I've got to do something else first before I go. I'm just not good enough. He only accepts losers. You got to be a loser to get in the club. So don't try to be a winner. He's the only winner in our club. (laughs) The only one. Let me also encourage you with the security that you have in your faith. Jesus is holding you and the Father is holding you. The devil can rage as much as he wants. He will never get you if you're truly in the faith. Can he tempt you? Can he try to deceive you? Absolutely. But the more you expose yourself to the light of the word and the more you're in prayer daily, this helps you fight. How did Jesus fight the devil? With the word. That's how you'll fight as well. Amen? So you need him for your salvation. You need him for the security in your faith. You also need him to help you in your steps, your daily steps. Christ is going to help you not put trust in the flesh, but put your trust in his footprints. He's walking ahead of you. He says, follow me. The word Christian means Christ follower. (laughs) That's all we do. We just follow Jesus. We talk how he talks. We walk where he walks. So he guides your steps as well. Do not put confidence in the flesh for your salvation, for your security in your faith, and definitely not for your steps. Jesus does all that for us. This will set you up for victory in the Christian walk. Amen? Let's pray. Father, your word is so precious and true and powerful and good, and I pray that you've used it this morning powerfully in each of our lives. We all came in this room this morning with different concerns, different hurts, different distractions, different fears, different anxieties, different plans. You're Lord of all, and I pray that you spoke to all in some way. And now, Lord, I pray, give us grace to walk in obedience to how you've spoken to our hearts. We love you. And I pray this in Jesus' name.